0: I get to introduce our speaker for this morning. Chris Legg is the lead pastor at South Spring Baptist Church. He also leads the team at Aletheia Family Counseling Center, offering counseling, speaking, and business consulting. Chris and his lovely wife, Ginger, have been honeymooning since 1993 and have been blessed with five great kids. He has written a Bible study for discipling other men, especially sons, called The Gauntlet, and it is our joy to welcome Chris Legg. Please welcome Chris with me. Thank you, sir. Um, hey, yeah, it's great to be here. And um, uh, I have gotten over the years to know Wayne well. He was here first service. He must have. He heard it and he was like, man, that's plenty for one day. I'm, I'm heading out of here. So, um, hey, how exciting to hear that a church is dealing with... Um, the question of power—that is a—that's um, very encouraging to me to know that that uh, that that this is a question that the church is dealing with. Let me tell you first a little bit about um, uh, my day and why um, I'm in a great mood this morning. So, one, first, I had um, a leftover Krispy Kreme from yesterday, and so um, I don't know about you, but. That's, that's a big deal for two reasons. One, it meant I got to have a Krispy Kreme this morning, and two, it meant I didn't eat it between yesterday and today, which um, that's borders on a miracle. And That means I had no self-control to make it through that. And I got to stay at a nice hotel room last night, thank you, that, um, uh, and got sleeping an hour later than my kids usually allow me to. Um, Eye of the Tiger came on the radio as I was riding here to the church <laughs> um, and decided that's my, now, that's my new walk-in music um, when I'm preaching now. That's going to be my I think that would work super well. Um, child of the 80s, you can't beat Eye of the Tiger for getting ready to preach. I know it probably should be more spiritual or something, but come on. Like, um, um, I got to hang out with Wayne between the services, which, I mean, who gets to do that? And then uh, worship in the first service. Thank you, team, for leading us. Um, and then let me tell you a cool one is that as I was leaving the hotel this morning, stopped and, and got some coffee and said, um, I was the only one leaving at that time, and they were like, so what are you up to? And I said, I'm about to go preach. And this gentleman, whose name was Coffee, not kidding, that was actually his name, um, came over and said, well, let me pray for you. And, um, and so Coffee prayed for me, and I got to pray for him at the Hotel Indigo this morning. And um, I mean, what a, what a cool thing um, to impact uh, someone's life that way in just a few seconds. Um, I, think, I think very often, you know, people talk about in the psychological world, people talk about people using one-tenth of their... <laughs> uh, Of their brain, which is just silliness, by the way. There's no such research to indicate that. But, um, but man, the church using one tenth of our power, I think, is really probably is a fair critique for us in many ways. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand me. I'm not one of those people who complains about the church, the American church. The truth is, um, the American church has, uh, and, and the Western world church, and the church as a whole, has done more to impact the world than anything. There's not a close second. There's no, not even not even nearly close, the, the, the millions upon millions of dollars and millions upon millions of man hours. And the, You go to anywhere in the world, if you've done much travel, much mission work, you go to anywhere in the world and you find the, the people who are hurting the most in any given area and there's a group of Christians trying to take care of them um, in the name of Jesus. So uh, this is, that's not meant to be negative in any way about the church, exactly the opposite. But I think even with that being said, sometimes we live out one-tenth of the power that God has given us to live. And when I, I get to see a church... Um, that's, that's emphasizing the role of power for us in the Christian life. Man, that's, that is exciting to me. When, when Wayne told me that was going to be kind of the generalized theme, I immediately go to certain people um, in my mind. and So that's what we're going to get to talk about today. I will tell you, we're starting to see a shift, um, I do think, among the Christian church, which I hope is a shift towards a new awakening, but um, here, which is to engage with the power that God has given us. As we see um, churches historically that have either been silent about or on the wrong side of questions like racism. Man, to see evangelical Christian churches stepping up and saying, um, man, what, what is the deal? What, what were our forefathers thinking that a brother in Christ would somehow um, denigrate or dismiss another brother or sister in Christ over race? I mean, how offensive to, to Jesus Christ that must be. And so to see American churches stepping up and leading in regard to actual reconciliation, um, man, that is some power to see. Um, I have story after story about it that, that, um, uh, that you, would, you would love to hear. I just, I just feel like there's such power there. Another one is um, in regards to, for example, adoption. Um, what, what an amazing thing. I know a few years ago that, that it was, the, the statistic was that in America, if out of every six evangelical churches... Out of every six evangelical churches, if one family would adopt one child out of the foster system, we could close the foster system in the United States. Um, This is very, very doable. And in fact, it's one of the most amazing powers that our churches could be living out. And um, so to see churches grabbing onto that, we, we have adopted, many of our staff and our church have adopted kids, and, and the way that the church comes around and supports, not everyone can do that, but everyone can help and everyone can support, and what a great, powerful ministry. We could, we could revolutionize our nation in one generation if we would do this. Something like, I know there's different numbers, something like 70% of, kids, of people in prison went through the foster system in America. So if we pull all those kids and we capture them and we love them and we make them ours in the name of Jesus Christ, we could, could we potentially have half as many people in prison in a generation and instead being raised in our families? And you talk about controlling a voter block. You want to control every election moving forward? Take every one of these kids out of the foster system into our homes? Um, let them be our kids. Claim them as ours, which they are. And man, just... The power sitting there that God is that just just doing what God has already asked us to do. And I'm going to focus on another expression of power that we minimize today as I go through the story um, that we're going to go through. I think it's cool that we're starting to get it. But I want to clarify, sometimes we emphasize these people's power in the Bible too much to the degree that we we make them not as hard to associate with them. It's hard to connect to them. So I want to make sure you understand who it is we're dealing with here. One of the great divine powers that God has given us is the power to forgive and move on, to forgive and let go. There's a huge power. And I I wasn't planning on talking about this, but I really felt what I I guess kind of the the impression from the Spirit that I I needed to at least talk a little bit about this. So I'm going to here. This is an important part of the story, but it wasn't going to be the emphasis. Um, But I'm going to talk about it now instead. Um, at this risk of running short on some other things I want to talk about. but So I want to, I want to talk a little about forgiveness just for a second and then show you why it fits here. Um, Jesus taught about forgiveness a lot. This was a major theme of Jesus' um, when His time on earth was a the theme of forgiveness. Um, and, and we have a lot of really bad understandings about this in the church. It's, we treat forgiveness of all things very often as cheap, which is just stunning to me. Um, in a faith that teaches that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins, how could we think forgiveness was cheap? mean, we, we have a God who came and lived as a human being to suffer and die to offer us forgiveness. How could we of all faiths think that forgiveness is like, ah, it's no big deal, just forgive? The truth is there's no such thing as, as an unleveled balance in the end time. All debts are paid in the end Um, This is part of our teaching, that what it means to forgive is to to say, I can forgive that. I will just allow that payment never to be made to me. When Jesus teaches on forgiveness, he always connects it to debt, the debt owed us. You may grow up um, in a church that said the Lord's Prayer regularly. or I grew up at an Episcopal school, so we always did the Lord's Prayer. And we did trespasses, which I love because it's so beautiful, the alliteration, right? It sounds like a room full of snakes. Trespass against us. I loved that as a kid. I used to sit and wait for that moment when we get to that line. I loved it, and so which was always a good deal for me because I grew up out in the woods, and I trespassed a lot, and I didn't have any property. And so it was like, hey, yeah, this is a good deal. You trespass all you want on my nothing, and I'll trespass all over your stuff. So um, this, was, this was a good deal for me. Modern-day translations put a different word there. The word there is debt, which is a better word for us in modern English. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Jesus always links forgiveness to debt, and we are owed debts. Everybody, we've all been hurt, we've all been stolen from, we've all been cheated, we've all been lied to, we've all been promised something and it doesn't get delivered. All of us have experienced that, some tragically, disastrously. But if you go to a Christian support group or or a Bible study and you go, yeah, I was abused as a child, or or I was rejected, or I was bullied, or I was whatever, in about 45 seconds someone's going to go, now you know you need to forgive that person. Oh, well, sweet, okay, then I'll just do that. No, no, the truth is, if, if I owe you $1,000 and you forgive it, that doesn't just poof, vanish. It means you paid it. It means you ate it. Without well, $1,000, I'll just learn to live without it. Why do we forgive? Why does God call us to forgive? Does it is it because it makes us feel better or makes us healthier or all these different things? Which it can, but doesn't always. Jesus only ever offers one motivation for us to forgive. Why do we forgive? Because He forgave us. He has purchased us, lock, stock, and barrel. All the debts owed us are now owed Him. They're his problem, not our problem. So we can forgive them. Listen, I expect and require no payment on this debt I'm owed. This debt that I'm owed, I can sit out and write out the entire thing, which is something I do therapeutically. Um, I have much more about this on my website. Wayne said to go ahead and tell you it's ChrisMLeg.com. Much more written out about forgiveness here than I'm going to touch on today, but. You write out this huge debt letter and all the things that you're owed, and they're legitimate, and you, we don't minimize those. And then we go, and now so what are we going to do? Because God has forgiven us such a massive debt against Him, we can now afford to forgive, to say, I expect and require no payment. It's not the same thing as reconciliation. I don't have to let an abusive parent babysit my children. I don't have to loan somebody another $100 after they've stolen thousands. That's not what it means. To forgive means to expect and require no payment. It doesn't mean what they did isn't sin. It just means their sin is between them and God, not them and me. So expect and require no payment. Clearly, the people who we're going to talk about today got this at some point. I'm going to to mention this in a second, but I I felt like it was important to mention this today, this morning. As we look at these people and the, the expression of power that God has given them, I want you to see that that these are not disconnected people. These aren't magic people who who aren't like us. Listen to who we're talking about. Of the three main characters, one is the son of a formerly pagan prostitute. And everyone knows it. She is famous for it. Everyone knows this about her. He is also a middle-aged, half-Jewish man who apparently seems to be unmarried. That's because he's already a widower. He's had the death of his first wife. Hasn't been married to his work and never been married. No one... Wants to marry the half-breed son of a prostitute. Maybe it's that. We don't know. One is a foreign woman raised to worship the most brutal and evil of gods. She was fortunate to escape without her parents having burned her alive in the worship of this God. Further, she is young and childless and a widow in a foreign country. And the last is an old woman who was foolishly and faithlessly led away from her home and her God by her husband, who then died where her sons married foreign unbelievers and then died. In as unsubtle a gesture as you can possibly imagine, she has literally changed her name to bitter when we meet her in the story. And all of them live in the era of the judges. The era of the judges, I talked through judges um, last fall, and now I understand why preachers don't do that very often. It's just depressing. Week after week going, "I'm, I'm so sorry, that's what we talked about today. Like, I know it was a downer. And the truth is, next week will be worse. And I'm so sorry. So, <laughs> I'll see you back here then. Um, it, it, this, was a, this was a broken time in Jewish history. Dark, brutal, too many little G-gods and not enough of the big G-god. Savage. As bad as everything else is in Judges, the relationships are worse. The, the, as bad as the relationships are in general, the romantic relationships are a nightmare. Um, literally... The romantic, quote, relationships in the book of Judges are defined by kidnapping, assault, abuse, and murder. And that's the romantic relationships. These are broken people and they're from a broken place in a broken time. That's who we're talking about today. So, so that you don't feel disenfranchised by these people. When you feel powerless or rejected or the need to forgive or you feel hurt or spat upon by life, don't give up on the power that we can find in a life with Him with Almighty God like they do. Um, we're not going to do a line-by-line study of Ruth. That, that took four weeks at my church and did not, um, still did not cover even, just scratch the surface. Um, if, that's, if that is interesting to you, Wayne said I should mention, that's at southspring.org. If you want to dive in detail about Ruth, there's so much. And I know Wayne preached about it probably just a couple of years ago. Um, man, we love the book of Ruth. We feel good when we study the book of Ruth. That's, I could teach it annually, and the judges about every 20 years, I think, is when I would teach that one again. So, so we're introduced to the character, but we're not doing that. We're going to just look at the, some of the people and just some moments, some, some little moments. So we know the story of Ruth a little bit, probably if you've read it or if you've seen the Veggie Tales. Ruth is, Ruth is someone who goes, um, Ruth marries one of, of Naomi's children, one of her sons. The son dies, and, and Naomi, now bitter, is going back home to Bethlehem. Because um, there's food there and there's a lot more to teach to that, but I'm going to skip that um, for the sake of time. And so she says, um, Listen, daughters, go back, go back to your families. And they argue with her and she argues back, and one of the daughters leaves, daughters in law leaves. But Ruth says this in chapter 1, 16 and 17. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or return from following you, for where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also if anything but death parts me from you. Where do we typically hear this? Do we not typically hear this? Weddings. Okay, good, yeah. Like I typically hear it at weddings. We hear this at weddings. Here, think about that. When you read that, you go, This this, this beautiful poem about devotion maybe the best written best spoken phrases about devotion in the history of mankind was not written by a priest for a wedding service it was spoken by a pagan moabite widow and here we are 2,000 plus years 3,000 years later using it in our wedding ceremonies that is power the power of her character rippling down through history in amazing ways. That's that's fantastic. What about Naomi and God and her God inspired this in Ruth? We don't know. But something amazing did. At the end of chapter one in this book, you've got the, the old bitter woman and the young um, foreign widow, and they have no hope. And they have no help. And at the end of Ruth chapter one, you're supposed to be depressed. If you're a good Jewish audience, you're getting to the end of Ruth chapter 1 going, man, these women have just been abandoned by everybody. Presumably even God. But then chapter 2 verse 1 begins with the first line of hope in the book. Now, Naomi had a relative. This was meant to be like, a, hey, and by the way, this is, this is subtle, Jewish subtle. A worthy man of the clan of Elimelech whose name was Boaz. Now, when I ran into these two words that are translated worthy man, gibor, kayu, I needed some help because I'm not a Hebrew scholar. So I reached out to my Hebrew scholars, and one of them named Wayne Broderick sent me back quite a good uh, explanation for this, which was really valuable to me. These two words put together is a rare combination. It's a powerful combination. Worthy, Gibor, worthy, champion, valiant, helper, hero, giant, warrior. As in a mighty God. When you see mighty God used in the Old Testament, it's this word, gibor. But then you get this redundant word with it, hayil, which means powerful, virtuous, mighty, strong, wealthy, an army. So here we're introduced, worthy man doesn't seem to even touch that in my mind. This is a, this is a worthy, worthy. This is a mighty, mighty. It, it is a, it's an it's a, This is a one-man army. It's always used to describe military people, but in this case... It's just a Bethlehem businessman. And he's described with this, these powerful, two, maybe the greatest compliment a man in Hebrew can receive. He shows up at about noon at his land, so he's not a micromanager, he's not a control freak. I'm telling you, you could study in your business, you could study the person of Boaz as a management and leadership guru, and you could study him for months. He, he, gets, he is incredible as a manager and a leader, and we get little glimpses, and yet they're so rich But here, for example, he's not a micromanager. He shows up at about lunchtime, walks out to his men. Now, this is the time of judges when people do what's right in their own eyes. They ignore the law. They ignore God. And he comes out to them. And because he is saturated with God, he's saturated to the dripping point. It just comes out of him. He walks out to the field with all of these roughnecks, professional harvesters, and says... The Lord be with you. I thought that would trigger at least a couple. Yeah, thank you. So, all right? Where did you So if I say the Lord be with you, you say? Okay, even in an evangelical church, we know this. How do, where did we learn that? We know that we learned that we learned that in school, we learned it at private schools, we learned it at where we grew up in a more liturgical church or whatever. I've start, I've taken to saying this in the church just because it feels cool to do it. I mean, I just I come out now most of the time on Sunday morning and go, the Lord be with you. And everybody goes also with you. And I, every time I get a smile, I'm like, that's just cool. I mean, that's just like, thank you very much. That's awesome. That was not, the priestly welcome was not created by a priest. It was created by a Bethlehem businessman. We think that the power, the power in the Christian life or in the God-fearing life, comes from the professional Christians. Stop that. That's absurd. It's ridiculous. It is, it is, aside from the Christian teaching that we are a priesthood of believers, here we have the example modeled to us. What are the role of the priests in the book of Judges? Nothing. What we need are men and women to step up who, who maybe they don't have a seminary degree. Maybe they don't have whatever. Who cares? As I said in the first service, you don't, you don't pay your staff because they're more godly than you are. They probably aren't. Listen, I'm just going to tell you, they're not more Jesus-y or Christy than you are. You're paying them for their time, for their training, maybe their expertise, maybe some skill sets. But if you think that they're somehow your, your go-between for Almighty God or for the ministries of God, then stop that. Don't, don't buy into that anymore. We don't, we don't believe that. And these guys model this beautifully. Two of the greatest things that we have in history... Two of the greatest phrases, "The Lord be with you," and the station about devotion, came from these two, spreading down through time. I love it. Power must have been his presence. Um, I don't know if you have a um, if you have a uh, if you understand the concept of presence, but it's an important leadership concept. Certain people have presence. Um, um, when you're in their you're in their, their um, in their presence, there's something they cause for you. There's something they cause in you. I have a therapist who has a presence of joy. If you're in her presence, you have to choose to be joyful or not. You can choose not, but she's going to make you choose. It's, it's an amazing presence. I think Boaz's presence was a presence of power. Uh, I didn't say this first service, but you know the word Boaz doesn't mean anything in Hebrew? Everyone else's name in the book of Ruth means something, is a Hebrew word. The word Boaz is not a Hebrew word, but it came to mean power, strength. Not because that's the Hebrew word, but because that's the, that's the impression of. Boaz gave the word. If you look up now, what does Boaz mean? It'll say strength or power. One of the pillars of the temple is the, is the pillar of Boaz. That's just, guys, does that trigger any, like, the thought of changing the meaning of your name? Anyway, all right, maybe it's just me. All right, so, so he comes out, he says this to them. Then um, he says to his, now Boaz says to the young, this is 2-5, Boaz says to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? Notice he's giving a young man a chance to lead, another, therap- another uh, managerial thing. But whose young woman is this? Now what caused Boaz to notice Ruth? What do you think? Group participation. Okay, beautiful, right? Okay. So there probably would have been a number of women gleaning here halfway through the day. But so the the natural, typical answer that I get is beautiful. Here's what's wild. Ruth is always portrayed in art as a beautiful woman. There's not a single physical description given of her in the book of Ruth. Not one. Her character glows to such a degree that we have a hard time imagining her as anything other than physically beautiful. But she may not have been at all. We just have no idea. That's not what the young man responds. The young man responds with one, um, she is hardworking. Two, she is gracious. Listen to verse 2-7 in the answer. <clears throat> the, the, the young man says, She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and she has continued from early morning until now except for one short rest. So what stands out is, one, she asks nicely if she can glean. Understand, this is her right by law. Even as a foreigner, foreigners are not protected by most Jewish law, but the gleaning law, they are absolutely protected by it. By law, she has the right to gleam. She does not have to ask. She just does it. But she doesn't. She does not grasp what she's entitled to. I want you to, as you see the level of graciousness and appreciation that this woman has, I want you to ask yourself, is the modern day expression, what, we're, what allegedly is being taught to uh, in the view of femininity, is it more powerful than the one that Ruth portrays? It's certainly more aggressive but is it more powerful? And I, I would submit to you that it's not. Um, and I think God shows that to us. It is, she does not demand what she's entitled to. As Margaret Thatcher said, if you're, anyone who is a lady doesn't have to tell you she's a lady. Um, this, this person, she gets this, and she, this is about her character shining out. Um, so he says, she's been working from early morning till now except for a short rest. Apparently what made her stand out was she's right on the heels of the professional harvesters. I mean, she's waiting for them to drop something, and she's pouncing on it, right? I mean, she's ready to go. That's why she stood out. She has developed a sense already not of getting attention but admiration for the young women in the room, that is, and the old women in the room, and everybody in between. This is a good line for men and women. Are we more focused on attention or admiration? This is an attention-seeking world. Um, Do you all know that narcissism was nearly pulled from the Diagnostic Statistics Manual this time it was printed for psychologists? Narcissistic personality disorder was nearly pulled because if everyone has something, it's not a disorder anymore. (laughs) I'm not kidding. It was nearly pulled completely. It probably will not make the next one. Um, That's a little scary when a personality disorder now defines a culture to such a degree that we don't call it a disorder anymore. No, that's just us. Anyway, so Boaz's response is to be, he offers her protection and and not possessiveness, shepherding. There's a big difference. Probably, probably in a group this size, there's plenty of men who are control freaks and demanding and emotional blackmailers and, and all that kind of stuff. That's not Boaz. Boaz is in the perfect position to put this woman in his debt to control her, to, to have power over her. And, and his, Instead, he takes responsibility, not jealousy. Jealousy is not love. He takes responsibility for her. So he goes to the hired hands and tells them, by the way, this is the book, this is the era of Judges. I told you what defines romantic relationships. He goes to them, and we know from verse twenty-two in this same chapter that assault is a real problem. So he goes to the men as like, "See her, hands off." Now again, what do you think that the, these roughnecks, these tough guys, these professional harvesters, what do you think their response was to Boaz saying "hands off"? Yes, sir. That's exactly what I think it was. When you have a presence of power, you don't. You don't. A guy like this. I mean, this guy's. I, I will tell you. When I talked through more in detail with this, I wasn't. I, I need to be careful not to run out of time here, but. Um, uh, I see Boaz as almost like the godfather of Bethlehem. I mean, he, he knows everything. He comes in and says, like, who is that? And the minute he hears who it is, we find out in a second, he's already here and he knows all about her. She's been here, what, a day? I think any time you come to Boaz and go, like, Boaz, why would you know that kind of stuff? I think he would say, it's my job to know, right? It's my job to know. This is, uh, this is my town. I know everything that happens in my town. Anyway, but so he comes to her and says, offers her these things, he keeps the men, tells them, hands off. What is her response to him saying, hey, stay around my people, stay under my protection, um, you know, stay, by, stay by my servants, I've told the guys to keep their hands off of you. Does she, does she have that modern day response of like, I don't need your help, right? I can take care of this on my own. Listen to this response on her part. Is she entitled or critical? She is humble and appreciative, two traits mocked by modern day society. And yet I can you tell you how powerful they are? Um, listen to this response. Ruth 2:10. then she fell on her face and bowed to the ground and said to him, "Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I'm a foreigner?" That is extreme, humble appreciativeness. That's over the top. Did she come across as weak to you, though? Keep reading. So Boaz swoops in and takes advantage of this poor, helpless girl's condition. Not at all. That's what you would expect. But that's not at all what happens. Boaz says, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. See, he knows. And how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people you did not know, the Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. You know why we feel good when we read the book of Ruth? Because we see a man and a woman respond to each other who are in a competition for blessing each other. His response is also humble and appreciative. Every single prayer in the book of Ruth is a blessing. And this is one of them. Men and women, is this what defines our marriages? Is this what defines our relationship? Is how can I go out of my way to make sure you have an awesome life? How do I sacrifice for myself? The, these, I mean, I can imagine the two people, the people around these two people. They are clueless about falling in love the whole book. I'm convinced of it. Only Naomi, the all-knowing Jewish mother, is the only one who knows what's going on. And she always knows. They're, they're clueless. I think even Boaz has no idea that he's falling in love with her and that she's falling in love with him. But we see this, and it's, she, she is over the top, humble, and appreciative. He is over the top, humble, and appreciative. He is protective. He is devoted to her. He prays for her. It's incredible. I, I this story is so filled with richness. So one of my favorites, this is one of my favorites. I'm going to do this quickly. Notice... For us as men, I think it's healthy that we want to rescue somebody. I think that's a God-given thing. Um, as young men, we typically have fantasies of rescuing the beautiful woman. Um, it's really common. That's why it's in all the comic books. It's why it's in all the hero stories that we're going to somehow swoop in and save the day. Um, that's, that is a God-given trait, I think, that, that we have. That being said, there's also a tiny dark side of that, an adolescent side of that, which is... We like the thought of this woman now being indebted to us. This isn't healthy, but there's some part in us that we're so intimidated by women that the only way we know how to engage with, with a woman, especially as an adolescent, is if we have a little advantage. We feel that we feel that need to create that gap. Well, she owes me. Think back to the superhero movies that you've seen. What is the response of the beautiful woman when, when Spider-Man sweeps in and saves her? What do you know is the next scene? is she's going to be kissing him in the next scene. She doesn't even know who he is. <laughs> all she knows is he rescued me, and that deserves a physical representation of my appreciation. I, I think that's broken, and yet that's really common. When I talk through this in detail, I threw up shots after shot on screen of movies that showed this happening. There were scenes all over the Internet of, of women kissing firemen and policemen who had just rescued them. Maybe there's something natural and healthy somehow wired in that, but I think that side that goes, I want to really rescue somebody, and there's some part of me that likes the thought of them being indebted to me. Not good. Boaz rescues her without that. He actually goes to the men and tells them, stop gleaning, stop harvesting so well. Leave a little behind. When, you, when you're picking stuff, drop stuff. Leave it so she can pick it up. Notice the brilliance of he is taking care of her and she doesn't even know it. It's it's an incredible thing. She walks away with 30 to 40 pounds of grain the first day. She seems to think this is normal. She comes home with this. Naomi goes, uh, well, whose eye did you catch today? It's not normal to glean that much in a day. That's a couple of weeks worth of food for the two of them. This is is stunning, and Naomi knows better. Ruth doesn't seem to Boaz doesn't seem to. We get to the threshing room floor, which I'm going to go through quickly. It is another incredible story of a woman who comes to a man and says, um, <coughs> uh, Naomi sends her in there with total faith. By the way, dads with daughters, moms with daughters. Hey, go to the party, the end of the year harvest party, where all the people are going to be um, partying like crazy for a few hours. And I'll tell you what, just, just get all dolled up. End your end your grief which is what she's saying here, wash yourself, anoint yourself, put on your cloak and go down to the threshing room floor. Listen to this phrase, then go and uncover his feet and lie down and he will tell you what to do. In the Hebrew, it's probably and do whatever he says. How much confidence does Naomi have in Boaz? This is incredible. This is a, this is a terrifying moment for this young woman to be put in this situation. This is probably a marriage proposal on her part, but she, she does it in such a way to not put him in a bind. Um, so at midnight, the man was startled and turned over because his, his feet were cold, right? And I love the, the Bible's understatement of this. And behold, a woman lay at his feet. I love that. I was like, what the? Anyway, so, and it's dark. And so he can't see, he can't see what's going on. He doesn't have an iPhone to like, you know, and so... Who are you and why are you here? And she says, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Now, this could be interpreted probably, if I understand this, this could be interpreted as, I'm cold, can I have some covers? Or, can I be your wife? Will you redeem me? And probably this is not just a peer wife. I think, this is my opinion, is that this is a concubine. She is offering herself as a slave wife to Boaz. And Boaz now has, he, has he, is totally, he is totally justified in taking this woman right here as his wife. There's no wedding ceremonies, no licenses. She's coming in freely. He could say, Done, deal. But instead, here's his response He says, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter, another blessing. You have made this last kindness greater than the first. Essentially, what he says is, No, I will not take you as a concubine. What I want is for you to be my peer wife. He's going to marry her as though she was a full-blooded Jewish woman. Under the protection of the Redeemer laws, it's it's outrageous that he has the perfect opportunity to be totally in charge of their relationship, and he says no. He sneaks her off in the night because he either needed to marry her, to, to be with him on the floor there, and then to be sent home is not cool. That's going to imply something totally different. But he doesn't pick either. He doesn't pick those. What he says is, I'm sending you home because I'm going to go make sure I can marry you the right way, which is what he does the next day. It is, it's an incredible story. And by the way, he sends her out with even more, twice as much, which is hilarious. This idea of this little woman taking back 60 pounds of grain is pretty hilarious. Um, I think he did it in such a way because he uses the word empty. And for a Hebrew woman, empty doesn't mean empty stomach. It's what what uh, Naomi uses earlier in the book, I went full and came back empty. She means her womb is empty. And I, I think Boaz positioned 60 pounds of grain like this on her so that she carried it back like this. She went back to Naomi, not empty. He's clearly communicating his goals for their relationship is to provide Naomi with a child. And so he, she comes back home like that. Naomi says, listen to this line. Ladies are going to love this line. <laughs> this is, I'm telling you, as a therapist, one of the worst things I hear that I know a marriage is in trouble is when I have a wife say, man, if I didn't take care of things, it wouldn't happen. Man, I'm on my own out here. Listen to this line. She replied, wait, my daughter, and you will learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest until he settles the matter today. That is a man. and love it devoted and gracious and diligent hardworking, sweet not entitled kind a blessing noble authentic sincere respected wise and worthy are all ways that we can see ruth in this story when i talked to a dbu's chapel recently um i talked through some of this stuff because they're they're slightly more interested in the whole romantic side of this story um that i bring i brought it to them and said you want you want a woman like this guys let me tell you the kind of man you've got to be Trustworthy, reliable, competent, strong, worthy, above reproach, considerate, intentional, esteemed, patient, appreciative, generous, protective, mature, and worthy. Mighty. The story is clearly one of the reasons that it's there. It's to tell men what type of woman they should be looking for, to tell women what type of man they should be looking for, which means this. It's telling men what kind of man we should be, and women what kind of women we should be. By the way, Boaz handles it. They are married, they have a son, that son has a son, and that son becomes King David. And this city becomes known as his city, the city of David. And there are lots more sons and a lot more daughters, and finally a son and a daughter are brought back to the city by Roman order to be counted in a census. And in these very same fields where Ruth and Boaz met each other and fell in love, a group of shepherds are watching overnight, and they get called back to the city to see the birth of, of Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. These two are faithful and live a life worthy of the calling with which they have been called in such a tiny way. Their power isn't that they they don't, they don't run a kingdom or slay a giant. I will tell you, I believe as a therapist and as a pastor that God creating great things in marriages is what will revolutionize, and families, what will revolutionize our country finally. I think we lose youth when they go off to college, not because of all the stuff that people say, but because their Christian parents' marriage stunk. And they want know part of that. They saw the worst from their parents. Do you know that in all the years of premarital counseling I've done, many 20-something years now, I ask the question, what's a marriage that you would like to model your marriage after? Every time I do it, I ask that question, what's a marriage you'd like to model your marriage after? Dozens of couples I've done this with, twice has anyone ever said, my parents. This is awful. It's a tragedy. If we had awesome marriages, God-glorifying marriages that were living parables of God's love for His people, we couldn't build churches fast enough for the people who would be streaming in. Because the world is lost, confused. They don't know it, but they know their marriages are awful. They pay lots of money to my counseling office for us to try to help them through that. If the church was a reasonable place where they could come see people who had awesome marriages, humble, appreciative, growing marriages, we wouldn't lose our kids when they went away because they would want to somehow figure out what mom and dad have. And certainly once they got married and saw how hard it was, then they'd be coming back going like, okay, you got to teach me how to do this because this is hard. I'm telling you, it's a brilliant, amazing, beautiful thing that God has given us, a living parable to live out to one another, for our family, for our kids, our grandkids. By the way, my answer to that question was my dad's parents. Grandparents, you're not done. You're not done modeling an awesome marriage. Get on it. This is is something the church has got to be doing, that our families step up and step out in power that the marriage is powerful, the family is powerful, and our kids see that we are humble and appreciative enough to grow. I want to pray for us that God will provide that in us. That's all they do. And yet look at the power thousands of years later. Father, we're so gracious that you give us the chance to be involved in what you're doing. You don't need to, but you do. You don't need us, but you choose us. You let us be involved. And God, I'm so grateful, God, as, as this church continues to engage In the power that you have shared with us, I pray that we will be great neighbors, that we will walk justly in our marriages, in our families, in our communities, that we will love mercy and forgiveness and kindness. First in our marriage and in our families, with our kids, and in our neighborhoods and in our churches, Lord, I pray that you would help us to exemplify this power first where it matters most. God, I pray that for these men and women who are here today. May we repent where we have moved away from this mindset in our marriages. Thank you, Lord. We love you. We praise you in your Son's name. Amen.